were listening in on Jesus in the upper room with his disciples the night that he would be betrayed. I am the true, true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes, so that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up, and they gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you will, and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Just as the Father has loved me, I have, loved, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. If you, can, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the tremendous privilege of hearing as if we were there in that upper room your son uh, speak to his disciples. Uh, we're thankful for your word, which is living and active and continues to speak to us, to your people today. Father, would you guide and direct us as we look at your word this morning and help us to apply what we see to our lives. Father, it's clear from this verse that we desperately need you and your power at work in us. Father, thank you uh, for this privilege. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I'm 78 years old. I've had a rich life of uh, ministry, missions, church planting. And, and yet somehow I feel like something is missing. I feel like there's something more for me to do. In, in particular, I'm thinking that I have at least one popular Christian book in me. Uh, one that would sell millions of copies to evangelical Christians. I know there have been numbers of books written on the theme of abiding in Christ, fruitfulness in the Christian life, but, but I'm, I'm going to let you in. I think I've got a, a different angle here that would really work. So think about this. In our passage for today from John 15, Jesus clearly links fruitfulness to abiding in him, right? Now think about Jesus' parable of the soils in Matthew 13. The seed that fell on the Good soil produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixtyfold, some thirtyfold. Now, what makes the difference in fruitfulness? Well, clearly, it's related to John 15. 
and the extent that a person is abiding in Christ. I'm thinking that the person who's only 30% abiding in Christ is the 30-fold Christian. The one who's 60% abiding is the 60-fold Christian. The one who's 100% abiding produces a hundredfold. And then I'll have seven easy steps to move from 30 to 60 all the way up to 100. What do you think? Do you think it'll sell? Too much popular Christian literature has that formula approach to almost any aspect of Christian living. Jesus didn't intend to hide how to live a fruitful Christian life until some brilliant Christian came along 20 centuries later and discovered the secret, that hidden formula that no one had yet discovered. I mean, doesn't every Christian want the benefits of abiding, of abiding in Christ that we read here? We would all agree that we want to be more fruitful in order to bring glory to the Father. We'd all like to see more of our prayers answered. We'd certainly like to be more full of Christ's joy. I suspect that that's why we can be lured towards some teaching that promises a fast track to all of those benefits. <clears throat> so how can we understand and benefit from what Jesus taught his disciples using the parable of the vine and the branches? Well, I'm convinced that the Old Testament can be a huge help to us. You see, Jesus wasn't the first one to use this picture, this image of a vineyard. That picture appears over and over again in the Old Testament, and it usually isn't a pretty picture. Please turn with me, if you would, uh, to Psalm 80. Psalm 80, and we'll begin uh, looking at verse... Psalm 80, verse 8. It's uh, right after Psalm 79 and right before Psalm 81. <laughs> so, uh, Psalm 80. Let's look at verses 8 through 13. Uh, you, God, removed a vine from Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground before it, and it took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shadow and the cedars of God with its boughs. It was sending out its branches to the sea and its shoots to the river. Why have you broken down its hedges so that all who pass that way pluck its fruit? A boar from the forest eats it away and whatever moves in the field feeds on it. So you get the picture. The vine is Israel. God brought the vine out of Egypt, drove out the nations, clearing the ground for it, and planted it in the promised land. The vine initially took root, sending branches to the Mediterranean Sea on the west, the Euphrates River. But now God had broken down the walls of his vineyard because of the people's sin, so that strangers plucked the fruit and wild beasts ravaged the vine. And that same image of the vineyard is found in the prophets Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Hosea. And each of these highlights God's consistent faithfulness to Israel and Israel's unfaithfulness 
leading to judgment. I'm convinced that those rich Old Testament pictures of the vineyard were in Jesus' mind when he was teaching his disciples in the upper room on the eve of his betrayal. Unlike the unfaithful, unfruitful vineyard of Israel, Jesus declares himself to be the true vine. He's the true Israel of God. He's the fruitful vine that God desired. Jesus is proclaiming himself as the true vine, true Israel, unlike faithless Israel, who would later that same night seize their Messiah and clamor for him to be crucified. All of Jesus' followers, those attached to him organically by faith, become the fruitful, faithful vineyard that God intended his people to be. Psalm 80 is a little bit different from those other pictures that really only focus on, largely focus on God's judgment. Psalm 80 is remarkable in the way that it clearly points to Jesus Christ as God's answer to Israel's unfaithfulness. So let's pick it back up in verse 14 of Psalm 80. O God of hosts, turn again now, we beseech you. Look down from heaven and see and take care of this vine. Even the shoot which your right hand has planted and on the sun whom you have strengthened for yourself. It is burned with fire, it is cut down. They perish at the rebuke of your countenance. Let your hand be upon the man of your right hand, upon the son of man whom you made strong for, for yourself. Then we shall not turn back from you. Revive us and we will call upon your name. O Lord God of hosts, restore us. Cause your face to shine upon us and we will be saved. So did you follow that train of thought? The psalmist pleads for, God's, for God to look down from heaven and act to restore his vine. But who was going to bring about that restoration? Restoration would come from the son whom God had made strong for himself. God's right-hand man, the one called the Son of Man. He would restore the people. He would give them life so that they might call on God's name. He would save God's people. Psalm 80 convinces me that we're meant to see Jesus as the fulfillment of God, all God's hopes for Israel. God's plans were for the uh, we're not going to be ditched because the people of Israel were unfaithful. God the Father's promise would be fulfilled in his Son, the true vine who would prove faithful. These are not coincidences. These are connections God wa uh, Jesus wanted us to see when he proclaimed himself as the true vine and his Father, the vine dresser. What then is the father's role in all of this? As the farmer or vine dresser, the father does two things. He takes away every branch that, bears, that does not bear fruit, and then he prunes every branch that does bear fruit that it may bear more fruit. And we'll look at both of those roles in just a minute. Before that, uh, 
uh, we go there, just take a quick look at verse 3, where Jesus says, you are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. What does that mean? Well, Jesus was looking back to something that had happened just earlier that evening, as recorded in John 13. You remember the time when Jesus stooped down to wash the disciples' feet, and Peter protested. This is back beginning in John 13, 3. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come forth from God, was going back to God, uh, got up from supper and laid aside his garments, and taking a towel, he girded himself. Then he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. So he came to Simon Peter and said to him, Lord, and Simon Peter said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, What I, I do, you do not realize now, but you will understand hereafter. Peter said to him, Never shall you wash my feet. Jesus answered him, I do, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, then wash not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, He who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean. That's y'all are clean, but not all of you. For he knew the one who was betraying him. For this reason, he said, not all of you are clean. So you see what Jesus was saying. They were not all clean because the traitor Judas was still with them. Once the traitor Judas left, then they were completely clean. Not sinless, just that all who remained with Jesus were made clean because of Jesus' saving work. Please don't fail to notice the means by which Jesus had cleansed them. It was by the word that he had spoken to them. We'll see shortly that the word of Jesus, the words of scripture, are meant to have the same powerful role in the lives of believers today. <clears throat> you know, as I've thought and read about this, it's amazing what people do with this idea of abiding in Jesus. Some teach it's some sort of a mystical experience that a person has. Some teach that it, it points to a level of Christian experience that's way above the level of ordinary Christian living, victorious, abundant Christian living, which some would teach can be gotten instantly uh, by a second act of grace. I'm going to contend this morning that the secret of the vine is, to use an oxymoron, an open secret. Because it's spelled out right here in John 15. Let's go back to that picture of God, the Father as the vine dresser. Jesus says the Father works in two ways. He takes away every branch that does not bear fruit, and then he prunes every branch that does bear fruit so that it may bear fruit more fruit. Let's think first about those fruitless branches. Was Jesus talking about real Christians who produce no fruit? Or those who just professed to be 
followers of Christ, but were never really drafted into the vine. There are some who point out that the word in verse 2 might possibly be translated lifted up, and so they would deny that Jesus is speaking about judgment. Yeah, that's a possible meaning of the word, but it can't be in this context. Context is always king in determining what a word means. Verse 6, speaking of the same fruitless branches, is clearly an image of judgment, final judgment, cast into the fire, burned. Now, in, in Jesus' teaching, there's no such thing as a fruitless Christian. In the Bible, fruitless Christian is an oxymoron, like random order or open secret or my favorite, jumbo shrimp. What does verse 8 say? By this is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. All true disciples produce some fruit. The branches that are thrown away and burned are those who just seemed to be joined to Christ by faith, but were never truly grafted into the living vine, Jesus Christ. There's a real note of caution here that each of us needs to hear and heed, especially if you've grown up in a Christian home and attended a Christian church all of your lives. I don't know how many people I've talked to in the course of nearly 40 years of ministry who give the same testimony of supposedly coming to faith at an early age and then later in life growing more rebellious, more godless as they become older, then concluding later in life that the faith of their childhood was not genuine saving faith. Now don't misunderstand me. I believe that young children can come to faith and go on to live lives honoring to God. But I'm also convinced that there are many who are self-deceived. As you evaluate your own faith, as you help your children evaluate their faith, be clear about this. The Bible knows of no critter by the name fruitless Christian. The Gospel of John is very helpful here. There's a category for those who believe in Jesus at a certain level, but are not really saved. You can meet them in John 8. <clears throat> God works differently in the lives of real believers. He prunes true Christians, so that they bear more fruit. God the Father has this role in the lives of all true Christians, those attached to the vine, Jesus Christ, by faith and drawing life from him. His purpose in doing so is always for our good and his glory. The Guinness Book of World Records has certified that the world's largest grapevine is the one in Hampton Court Palace outside of London. The grapevine was planted in 1769. It has a single stem 12 feet in circumference. Its longest branch is 120 feet. It takes up an entire greenhouse. It produces an amazing crop, an average of 600 pounds of grapes a year, one vine. Uh, great care has been taken over the years, fertilizing pruning, pruning, pruning the vine. 
Do you see that this should revolutionize our attitude toward the trials that come into our lives? How do you react to the negative things that come your way? What's your immediate, immediate re reaction when you realize that you've caught the latest bug that's going around? Or you're stuck in traffic? Or you've been passed over for a job? Or your power is out again? <laughs> and a thousand and one negative situations. By the way, true story. I'm working away on this sermon and Margaret bursts in to tell me that the washing machine is leaking all over the floor. <laughs> I almost went into, a, you know Tevye, Fiddler on the Roof? I almost went into a Tevye moment. God, here I am. I'm studying your word. I'm preparing to bless your people. And now this? Really? <laughs> I mean, I confess that my attitude is often one of anger or frustration. That's just sophisticated anger. I can't believe this is happening to me. It often still takes quite a bit of turnaround time to consider that God may actually be using this difficult experience in my life to refine my character to make me more like Christ, to cause me to love this passing world less, to make me more fruitful in ways that count for eternity. Can you relate to what I'm saying? If you can, believe that this is the truth of God's word. Uh, maybe this afternoon, look at Hebrews 12, which has a different metaphor to picture the same truth. God's the loving Father, who disciplines everyone he receives as a son or daughter. Why? Because he likes to inflict pain? No, because it's the only way that he can develop the peaceable fruit of righteousness in us, his children, his beloved children. If we could only quickly learn to submit to the Father's pruning, how much more peaceful our lives would be. <clears throat> in order to understand Jesus' metaphor of the vine, we have to ask what Jesus means when he calls each, each of us to abide in him. If it's not some mystical experience, some higher level of Christian living, then what does it mean to abide in Christ? Well, I believe it always begins with a sense of need, even helplessness. Last Sunday, Kyle drove home the point that we can't carry out Jesus' simplest commands, like following the golden rule on our own power. And then you get to love your enemies. You know, there's no way we can do that on our own power. That's the point Jesus makes here in John 15. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Sure, we can be full of activity, but we can do nothing uh, of eternal value for Christ and his kingdom without the, the living power of the vine flowing from him and through us. We're attached to the vine, Jesus, by faith, but how do we as branches maintain a vital connection with Christ the vine? 
One of my favorite Christian writers, Sinclair Ferguson, has summarized Jesus' teaching about abiding into one short sentence. Let me read that for you. In a nutshell, abiding in Christ means allowing his word to fill our minds, direct our wills, and transform our affections. Listen to that again. In a nutshell, abiding in Christ means allowing his word to fill our minds, direct our wills, and transform our affections. So the primary way that we abide in Christ is to be saturated with God's word. Jesus says, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Consistently choosing God's way rather than our own shows that we're abiding in Christ. Later in John 15, we see that a primary way of obeying Christ is by loving our brothers and sisters in Christ as he loved us. You know, I think Sinclair Ferguson hit on something deep when he said that abiding in Christ means allowing his word to transform our affections. God is not looking for res- the God is not looking for the resentful obedience of slaves. He's not looking for smart robots. God longs for us to return his love for us. He wants our obedience to flow out of a deep, real love, grateful love for our Savior. That's why Jesus talks so often in the language of love. We've already looked at the Father's relentless work of pruning so that we bear more fruit. We can either fight his pruning work or actively cooperate when difficult circumstances come into our lives. As I've already confessed, this continues to be a growing edge for me, especially as I start to feel more and more of the effects of aging. Rather than be resentful or discouraged during those times of pruning, we need God's word to remind us that the Father's continued work in us to make us more like Christ is a mark of his love and faithfulness toward us. I mean, how else can you make any sense of this crazy, insane verse James 1, 2, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. What? God has not left us to flounder around trying to figure out how to live out the Christian life in our own power and wisdom. By faith, we've been grafted into the living vine, Jesus Christ. His power is available to us so that we can live pleasing to him. The Father prunes us in love. (laughs) Do you see what good news that is? Let me quickly highlight four benefits of abiding that I see in this passage. The first is fruitfulness. Doesn't each of us want to produce more fruit? 
Well, what was that fruit that Jesus was talking about? I, I don't think we really want to pin it down any more than Jesus pinned it down. Whatever the fruit is, it's meant to be plentiful and lasting. I think maybe at the top of the list, we'd have to include brand new believers in Jesus, those who have been pointed by other Christians to the Savior. That would certainly be the fruit Jesus pointed to in John 4.36. The Samaritans who came to Jesus as a result of the witness of the Samaritan woman. In the same way, Jesus' death was to bear much fruit. In this case, the Gentiles being brought to saving faith. But we can't limit the fruit just to new believers. The fruit that Christians bear is anything of eternal value done in Christ's name and for the Father's glory. Second benefit of abiding is answered prayer. I mean, if you've been part of Harvest for any length of time, I hope you will realize that John 15, 7 is not a health and wealth and prosperity verse. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Those who are living a, in a living relationship with Jesus Christ and whose lives are shaped by the word of God will not be asking God or even worse claiming uh, a fancy mansion and a Rolls Royce. For the Christian, whatever you wish is shaped by those things that are most important to Jesus. Looking at Jesus' life, you know that a fancy mansion and a fine chariot were not high on his list of priorities. No, his life priorities were reflected in his prayer priorities. He wanted glory to go to the Father. He wanted people delivered from the power of Satan. He wanted the gospel to spread and be embraced in the whole world. God answers prayers that are prayed in accordance with his will. But how do we know what God's will is? Well, obviously, only by regular feeding on God's word, so that Christ's words begin to shape our whole outlook on life. How long does that take? <laughs> it takes a lifetime of opening your Bible every day, meditating on what God has said and humbly seeking to let that word shape and transform you. There's no shortcut. That's the only way that you begin to yearn for the things that are most precious to God's heart. I mean, do you think that some kind of heavy gold chains are, are precious to God? Well, then why would, any, why would anyone expect him to answer prayers that you get that kind of bling? Do you think the spread of the gospel to every people group on the face of the earth is precious to God's heart? Well, then you can have confidence that God will answer those impassioned prayers that he would raise up workers for the harvest field. The third benefit is that the fruit produced as the life of the vine flows into the branches, brings glory to God. Why? Because it's clear we didn't produce the fruit on our own power. 
The branch doesn't produce fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. We don't produce fruit unless we abide in Christ, the true vine. I look at the lives of those whose faith I have come to admire, and it's clear when I look at them that you can't explain their lives and their ministries in any way but God's power at work in them. And how about abiding in Christ's love? Do you really think that there's some secret formula for living a life full of obedience to Christ and self-sacrificing love for our brothers and sisters in Christ? No, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, a life of daily acts of obedience. A wife choosing to respect her husband and not be a shrew with her kids. A man choosing daily not to click on that link that takes him to depravity. A teen who daily resists the pressures from his unbelieving classmates to conform to a godless way of living. The child who chooses to honor and obey his or her parents is already building that base of obedience and love. My friends, you need to completely purge your minds of the idea that you're going to get a hold of a book or watch a YouTube video or attend a conference or have some kind of spiritual experience that's going to completely transform you, your life and turn you into some kind of fruit-producing machine. No. It's the work of a lifetime. It's the work of daily choices to say no to yourself and your desires in order to obey Christ and serve others. Don't let anyone fool you into believing that there is some other way. My brothers and sisters, abiding in Christ is also the only path to real joy. Joy isn't something we get by chasing after happiness. You know what happens. When we pursue happiness, it hides from us. If we think we've captured happiness, it's, it slips through our fingers like water. True joy is always a byproduct of honoring and serving Christ. Listen again to the link that Jesus makes in the closing verses of this um, portion of Scripture. If you keep my commands, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Chase after joy, and it will flee from you. Seek to love and obey Jesus. Seek to love and serve others. Give your life away. Deny yourself to follow Christ, and joy will sneak up on you and overwhelm you. Listen, my friends, I wouldn't do any service to the Christian community to write yet another book on the secrets of abiding in Christ and fruitfulness in the Christian life with seven easy steps to get there. That's because Jesus has already taught clearly the basic principles of abiding and productive fruit bearing. And not a single thing about what Jesus said 
lends itself to some cute formula or puts us on a, a fast track to bearing fruit or being giants of prayer? When will we as Christians realize that there are no shortcuts? There's no formula, no spiritual experience that can guarantee instant results in our spiritual vitality. It's the overflow of a life given wholeheartedly to Christ and shaped by the Word. As I close, um, I'm wondering, is it possible God's Word has revealed to you today that you're not really part of the vine, Jesus Christ? There could be no better time than today to come to Him like a child, repenting of your sins and embracing Christ, crucified, risen, ascended as your only hope in life and death. Perhaps you're convinced that you are really God's child by faith in His Son, but you realize that you've been trying to live out the Christian faith, the Christian life, and produce fruit by your own power and wisdom. I'm encouraging you today to rest in the finished work of Christ and to look on Him, the living vine. Let His Word set the priorities of your life and His power equip you to serve Him and to love others. Let's pray. Our gracious Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank You for the, the beauty and the power of Your Word. Lord, um, we we see clearly, and the longer we live the Christian life, we realize that there really aren't any shortcuts, that, um, that in some ways the Christian life is always going to be challenging. But Lord, uh, help us to pursue the path that you have laid out, thankful for the privilege of being united to Christ by faith, uh, thankful for the, the, the good news that because of your love and grace, you're still at work in us trying to conform us to the image of Christ. And Father, that you'll continue that work as long as we live. Uh, Father, um, give us grace to follow, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.